Somebody about 10 years ago said to me, the best thing about this industry is also the worst thing about this industry. And, and they said, that thing is passion. G'day and welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and it's a bit scary to think that it's episode 20. Episode 20 also marks 20 weeks since we started our lockdowns here in Victoria. So I hope for everyone out there who's listening that you're doing all right and that the end's in sight. For me, thanks a lot for keeping me company and spurring me on. I suppose from where I sit, it's actually been an awesome opportunity to just really grow these conversations and from my perspective, understand more about the influence and role of agriculture in the world around us. Today's guest is Craig Herity, who has spent much of his career at global professional services firm Price Waterhouse. His work has taken him across the globe, but back home in Australia, he's worked with some of the largest businesses in Australian agribusiness. He's a country boy at heart, raised in the regional New South Wales town of Parks. His passion for rural Australia has only really been exemplified with his v- recent and very large decision to retire. Inarguably, the prime of his career and with extensive opportunities in Australian agribusiness, Craig has made the decision to pursue something for himself. A life as a grower, maker, and creator. It all sounds pretty cryptic, right? Well, you better listen in and find out what's happening. It hasn't all been sunshine and daisies for him. His story is one of perseverance, overcoming the adversities of mental health, resultant family losses, and more notably, this is a story of someone who is true to who they are. The discovery and finding of purpose and meaning of true values in their life. I took a lot out of this conversation with Craig and I hope you enjoy it. As always, you can reach out to us at Humans of Agriculture with an underscore. Craig, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Lee, thank you for having me. It's um, an absolute pleasure to have you here. So thanks for taking the time today. And I suppose one thing I, I do want to start off, you've, you've been around a little bit. So I suppose if you were to look back today and there was a movie coming out of your life, who would play you? Oh, Ollie, that's unfair. <laughs> um, uh, oh, clearly Hugh Jackman. He's a good looking rooster, isn't he? And the singing voice? Um, it, uh, yeah, no, pretty ordinary. Um, no, no, I honestly don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that was the first thing that popped to my head, mate. So growing up in parks, being a country kid, but not growing up on a farm. And I suppose this is something that's been really interesting the last few weeks with people kind of coming across the podcast or even the Instagram page. And they're like, oh, we've heard of people leaving farming to go and work in the city. But it seems like there's this kind of light bulb moment for people where they don't realise that kind of people go the other way. But for you, so not being a farm kid, what drew you into ag kind of initially? Yeah, so so I, so my old man was a builder by trade and we um, we had the, the local Mitre 10 store in town for... 20, 30 years. I can't remember how long it was. A long time, ever since I've been alive. Actually, I think he started it the year before I was born. So that was 77. So, um, but had family and friends, um, friends of the family, if you will, that were all farmers and whatnot and some cousins that had property and whatnot. So I'd been in and around that, that industry and spent time on farms going like, um, doing vermin control. Oh, you'd know what a bit of vermin control is. Um, and roustabouting and doing odd jobs. But um, 
I, I actually, when I was a young kid, I hated agriculture. I thought I, I saw, or I only had eyes for the bad parts of it. I thought it was a mugs game. I thought this is crazy. I don't understand why people would do this. And that was, that was if you think about the timing of that, that was at the, the height of the millennium drought, really, yeah. um, through the 80s and the 90s. And I, I only really, I only, I only had eyes for the bad part of it. My wanting to leave the rural community to go to university and then eventually on to, onto the big smoke was, wasn't really a plan. I just knew I didn't want to stay in parks for the rest of my life necessarily. Um, I still love it. I still go back there. I've still got family there. I've still got friends there. And um, parks has been amazing to me and it's, it's shaped who I am. But I wanted, to, I wanted to chance my arm in the big smoke. So I went to uni in Canberra and then eventually started with Price Waterhouse, which I've got a bit of a story there. If you want me, I can share it to you. There's a, a bit of a slightly ag story related to it. So I'm, yeah, definitely I'm, I'm, get I'm, into it. I'm being, I'm being interviewed for the role as a, an internship back in 1997. I think it was anyway, I'm being interviewed in the Canberra office of Price Waterhouse by a HR person. And the person says to me, so tell me what you know about Price Waterhouse, right? First question, I had no idea what Price Waterhouse was in those <laughs> days. And immediately something came to mind. I don't know where it came from, but I remembered um, this story about driving into Sydney um, on a family holiday. We used to go to Manly on holidays every year. Um, and a lot of country people used to do that. So there'd be people from Cowra and Orange and Forbes and Parks and all camped in Manly at uh, Christmas and year time. Anyway, I remember us driving towards Manly and we're heading across from the south to the north on the Harbour Bridge. And on the left-hand side is, was, used to be the old Pricewaterhouse building. And so I started to tell this story to the interviewer saying, look, um, uh, the first time I came across Pricewaterhouse was I was in the car with my dad. I was about eight years old and we're driving across the Harbour Bridge and I looked to the left and I could see the big Pricewaterhouse sign on this massive building in the middle of the city. And it was like the Telstra ad. I said to my dad, what does Price Waterhouse do? <laughs> and he sort of thought about it for a little bit. And then he turned around and says, I think they train racehorses. <laughs> so like Gay Waterhouse or whatever. And so I told that story to the interviewer and I was in. I was, I like, I was, I was off to the races then, metaphorically. But um, <laughs> my, my coming back to agriculture, and I'm sort of fast forwarding a little bit, but my coming back to agriculture was really in about 2006. So I, uh, I was with the firm, the firm for about three or four years. And then I was lucky enough to go on to Comet to the London office of PwC and lived in the UK for about three years, came back in about 2006. And through no real planning, I ended up working on a whole bunch of ag clients of the firm and was sort of reintroduced to agriculture. And I guess having had the time and developed a bit of perspective professionally, I could see it with wiser eyes and it become really clear to me that there was opportunity here for me to, to get into something that I actually had some pre-existing knowledge about was, uh, this is a less tangible thing, but a, an intangible connection to home, uh, something where 
my ability to relate to the people involved, whether it was in management or people on the board, because in, in those days, and, and still to, to some extent these days, the boards of some of those big businesses have grower directors on them, right? And I could, I know, I seem to be able to relate to them fairly, fairly easily um, because we were sort of similar people and we spoke a similar language and I could un, sort of understand where they were coming from. And because uh, like it, was, it was like talking to my brother, or it was like talking to my dad or my uncle or whatever, like a friend of the family, whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't like, there wasn't a cultural difference or a cult, uh, societal difference, if, you, if that makes sense. So I sort of got known in the firm to sort of over time to be the, the ag guy. And then I just decided that, um, well, actually I didn't decide, a, a, a grey hair inside the firm decided by, by telling me one day, Craig, you're our agribusiness leader, print the business card, get on with it. And so I did that and that was like 13 years ago. It was pre-partner, yeah. So that was, I was a director at the time when that bloke told me that. So you were fairly young then too. I think when you're showing a lot of passion and a lot of interest and you're hungry to try and to build something out that didn't exist before, then I certainly found there was no resistance to it at all. Like the, the amount of positive reinforcement I got was amazing. And, and another interesting fact is when, when you start to talk about agriculture and rural communities and, and you get known as, as uh, a kid from the bush, all of these other kids from the bush inside these professional services firms sort of come out of the woodwork and are emboldened by the fact that you're taking pride in the fact that you're from that background. Whereas for whatever reason, they may be not so much were hiding it, but they didn't really, it wasn't a flag that they carried. So yeah. So, and so I could see a meaningful career for me to be able to get my teeth into. There was, um, there was opportunity economically from a country perspective for it to grow and for it to be more meaningful. There was the shifting in the consumer dynamic around knowing the food and telling the story of the farmer and the process and how it travels and all that good stuff. So yes, yeah, so I just jumped. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. I'm into it. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Do you think now if you were to kind of wind the clock back and you're a 25-year-old kid coming in out of university or whatever, do you think ag's been kind of more exciting in the last, say, 10 or so years that you've kind of been involved or yeah, what's the runway like? Oh, it's fundamentally different to what it was back in 2008. Um, today, there's a lot more pathways. There's a lot more um, excitement. There's a lot more 
difference in the pathways as well. I think like with the whole emergence of ag tech and ag tourism and a lot of different things that you can get involved in as opposed to the traditional stuff. So like we'll always need agronomists and we'll always need um, ag scientists and, and like all of the traditional pathways that might've been there and, and um, uh, research scientists and academics and all that good stuff. Mm. But there are lots of other options now, including within the professions um, that traditionally maybe you wouldn't have thought of ag as a feature in a law firm or in a big accounting firm. Yeah, definitely. The, the, the other thing that, that, is, that is acute, I'm acutely aware of more recently in the last sort of five or 10 years is like, I, I, particularly in the last two or three years, maybe um, the, the amount of really, really high quality fe- young females coming into the, the industry, which is like, first of all, it's about bloody time. Mm. Um, and, and two, that they can see a pathway because there's, there's been quite a few more recently sort of um, lights on the hill, if you will, of people that, so females that have got into leadership, leadership positions that have sort of charted a path for more females to come into the industry. And certainly from a professional services perspective, like inside our firm, most, well, sorry, all of the people that we've been recruiting the last two or three years, they've all been female. Yeah. And it's not because that's a conscious choice. It's just because of the quality of the candidates that have come forward and like they're firecrackers. They are top notch people and they're going to, they're going to redefine what agriculture and what the traditionally men dominated industry has been. Yeah. um, In which can only be a positive thing. Oh, it's bloody exciting. Isn't it? Like, even for me in the day-to-day stuff, but then um, with some of the leadership courses I've done and then kind of more broadly as well, like on farm, some of the people I went through uni with, like these people are just absolute rock stars, but they're not only working the hours on the farm, they're then getting involved in the community initiatives and then they're doing more on top of it. It's just like they're seeking extra opportunities to kind of develop themselves, which in turn is going to flow back to the industry. It's Yeah, like I remember... I remember when I was developing a bit of a plan when I first sort of started out in this, in this role and um, sort of trying to sketch out in a, in a, not a business plan, but sort of a, a strategic plan around what, what is it that I know about the cultural machinations of this industry and how, how people tend to operate and what are the, um, these are, these are broad generalizations, but what, what are the broad sort of ways that this thing works? And there was a few things, and and I have to say, the, this list of things is increasingly, if not completely changed, or it is changing massively. So, one one thing which I, you still see, particularly in the older heads around the industry, is that rivers run very deep in this industry, and so people have, like even the other day, I had a bloke telling me that oh, we should. Uh, we need to increase protectionism for agriculture and reinstitute the wheat single desk. Oh, gee, really? You're still holding on to that? Wow. Okay. So, so those very, mm. very deep, long-held views, they still permeate there. And every now and then they'll bubble up. Another one is the, is the concept of the Bush Telegraph. That, that manifests in a couple of ways. One is um, good, good news doesn't travel real fast, but bad news travels re- real fast. Yeah. Your reputation will have preceded you nine times out of ten. Um, you're only one phone call away really from anybody, anybody else in the industry. And so if you're trying to figure out what's this, this Ollie guy like, is he, 
is he a turkey or is he yep. is he a top bloke or whatever? Like it's, it's only going to be one or two phone calls that I need to make, and I've already made an assessment on you. The the other thing, which I think is is being moderated a little bit now, but at the height of the drought, wasn't being moderated in my humble opinion at all. Which is somebody about ten years ago said to me, the best thing about this industry is also the worst thing about this industry. And and they said that thing is passion. It's it's both at the same simultaneously the best thing and the worst thing. Um, yeah. Because passion gets you up in the morning, but passion doesn't really make you make good decisions. Right. And you can be blindly following a passion and blindly. It's almost like being possessed by a religion or a cult or something in some respects. But um, the the passion's great and we need to foster that and encourage it, but we also need to temper it when it comes to making really, really important decisions, particularly when it comes to life choices um, and, and pure economic choices as well. So, Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I want to tap in with you. And I, I suppose now's as good a time as any, like when it comes to head or heart type thing it, for you and you've made a fairly big decision recently to, retire it and i couldn't believe it when when you said or when i read the article and said 42 but how how long did you stew over a decision like this yeah so to give context so i i've been with my firm for i I saw it exactly the other 21 years and seven days something like that it's so i've just clicked off your life 20 i'm like 21st mate it's time to go to the pub but we'll talk yeah. about that later. Um, <laughs> the uh, 21 years and 10 years as a partner of the firm, um, which I never anticipated that I'd get that senior. I look at p- partners in those sorts of firms. We are incredibly fortunate. Like it's a, it's a high stress game, but it's also a very rewarding game economically. Um, and I got to the point where the, the stock and trade of what I was doing, which for me was um, audits or statutory audits, external audit, um, wasn't really burning as brightly inside me. My passion for that wasn't really burning as, as brightly. And it's not that I actively disliked it. I just, I just wasn't enjoying it. And I had tossed around for several years this idea of um, having a property of on a very small scale but having a property somewhere maybe down south of Sydney or relatively close west of Sydney over the mountains for two or three years and had this dream in mind that I'd be working three days in the office a week and maybe two days from the property or vice versa and doing like particularly with COVID right like you could telecommute and VCs yeah. and all that sort of stuff and everything's on the full time now. Well, exactly right. Um, and so I'd, I'd sort of played around with that. And I, w- w- when I started to play around with it, I started to speak to people about it. And one of the phenomenas that the phenomenas, is that a word? One of the things, <laughs> one of the things that people talked about that were, were actually doing that sort of thing talked about this, um, this feeling of resentment that they would get when they're traveling back to the city for work, particularly if you're doing it week in, week out, right? So mm. you, 
like people would talk about the the one hour barrier where once you've been on the road for an hour and you're, you're driving away all of the worries of the big city and the all of that baggage sort of dissolves away and as soon as you go through the front gate the gate of the property it's oh you you feel like a different person right yeah when you're jumping back in the car to go back not always but but you start to feel the opposite yeah and and i thought oh like that i don't know like that that could push me over the edge like that could really make me want to properly leave not that that would would have been leaving um so i i I let that sit within me for a bit about six months ago i just started to really allow myself to start to think about well and this is the scariest part really is well oh what does it look like on the other side and is am i defined by the institution that i've been a part of for 21 years and do i want to be defined by that so once I allowed myself to sort of feel comfortable and to explore that, it just become a lot clearer. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the thought process I went through in the last six months as well. Okay. Of an evening or a weekend or when I get a spare moment, I'm going to start, hmm, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could do that. And then put a little bit of structure around it to be able to come to the final decision that I've made now, which is, so I'm going to, finish up with the firm, um, which has been amazing, to be honest, through this whole process, both before and after I made this decision. But so the end of August, I'll be buying a small property, running some, just a small operation um, and doing other things and pursuing my other hobbies that I've really just treated as hobbies, but I want to actually buy proper tools and do it properly. And, um, uh, let rip that creative animal inside me and uh, do uh, both leatherwork and woodwork. And yeah. And, and to be honest, mate, I am ecstatic. You got no fears associated with it. It's I've got, I, I've got as complete an awareness of the risks as is humanly possible. Yeah. I wouldn't call it fear. I just know that there is going to be mistakes that I'm going to make and uh, I'm just happy to back myself to figure out ways out of them. Yeah. Fair enough. No, it's cool. I reckon it's bloody exciting. You're going to have to uh, make sure you get a decent sized shed. So either buy a property with a good sized shed or look for what, what, uh, what's yeah. the shed you need to. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Oh, the shed, the shed will be um, significant because <laughs> I'm going to be spending a shitload of time in there. Um, Good wood heater, but also like it is, it, it'll need a heater for sure, <laughs> particularly in the areas that I'm talking about potentially buying. But um, it'll need a heater and probably an air conditioner too, mate. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it'll just be some cattle, some pigs, some chickens, some ducks. Just like I'm not going to be. It's not sheep stations at all by any means, but um. I'm going to do that and then do the, the maker stuff on the side. It's a long way from, uh, from the suits and ties and, and jackets of a big CBD. And it's, it's a long way from the board table of Australia's largest companies. That's for sure. Yeah. And so I suppose you've had a few curveballs as well while you've been in the professional services business and you did allude to it earlier. So there was, um, 
yeah, you, you'd mentioned the pub, but you made a pretty significant decision a few years ago to give up drinking. And, and so I suppose be intrigued to understand more kind of given the Australian culture and a country boy. Yeah. It kind of, I suppose goes against the grain somewhat. So what led to that? Yeah. Well, yeah, it was a, yeah. So, so I, I like everybody else um, who grew up in the bush and it's not just a bush thing. I think it's a more broader thing, but it's a it's particularly relevant in the bush when I was growing up was like, I used to drink for Australia doing all that. And so it was in the culture from, I don't know, the age of 15, 16, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, I remember I used to play hockey in, in the local town competition and the sponsor of the hockey team was the, was the pub. Right. And I was playing first grade men's hockey in those days as a 15 year old. And we'd go to the pub after have the boat race. And that was hockey. the real winner of the day. <laughs> when I'm 15 and 16 and like, and that was just the way that we rolled. Um, but then, then I got to a point, and, I, and to be honest, I don't think the particular event that caused me to fall over the edge was, was the, the only problem that I had. But um, my brother took his own life in uh, 2015. And so for context, so my brother, there's only two of us. So me and my brother. My brother was five years older than me. Mum and dad. Dad had passed away probably about 10 years ago now, um, uh, much earlier, but um, uh, he just had a heart attack, whatever. And then, but yeah, so my brother, five years older, he was 42 at the time. He had, he was married. He lived in parks and he had six children. Wow. He had five girls and one boy. Um, at the time that he passed away, he, the oldest was 13 and the youngest, the, the boy, the little boy, Henry, he was three, three or four. Um, and so that knocked all of us, including my mum, for, for six. Like that, it's, it's, the, it's the classic scenario that you hear people talk about when, when suicide sort of comes into the family. It's, did I, should I have seen it coming? Why all of these... Um, uh, cavernous questions that you can never get an answer to not having answers. But, um, for me, what it meant was, um, I went back to work and then really fell off the wagon. I, I just, nothing meant anything to me anymore. I didn't want to be around other people. I drank way too much. I just crawled into a hole for, quite a while actually and um through a lot of uh helpful support and encouragement and long deep thinking about what it was that i was doing to myself and did i want to repeat what had happened with my brother to myself for the rest of the family i decided to get help and so uh that was four years ago, I suppose, four or five years ago. And part of that was giving up the grog. Part of that was facing into um, therapy with a psych, something that I, I never thought I would ever do, something that I thought people only did because they were weak. Um, it's amazing how receptive you are to help when it's you that are feeling your weakest. And once you open yourself up to it, 
how much stronger you feel. Yeah. Um, and then once, once people that you know and trust are aware that you've, you've been through something or you, you sort of, they get to know your story a bit more, the amount of other people that tell you about similar experiences that they've had themselves or that a close family member has had themselves, you then realise how much it permeates across all manner of parts of society. Mental health and drinking in particular is, is it's, a, it's a different beast in the bush. And so one of the things I've done more recently, once I've become aware of what they, who they were and, and what they're trying to achieve was sober in the country. So um, Shanawan from that charity. And um, so I've been trying to help Shanna in the, in the sort of background and, um, have, have been a supporter of hers ever since I met her. And I just thought what Sober in the Country as an organisation and as a movement was trying to do was something that that I could really see the need for it. And have you found, have you, do you speak publicly and openly about that, I suppose the mental health side and also the, yeah, drinking side of things? Or do you kind of just, you've, you've done your... Uh, you clearly haven't typed my name into YouTube, champ. No, I haven't. <laughs> having come through the other side of that whole quagmire and and been healthy pretty much ever since um i uh joined up with a group inside pwc called green light to talk and green light to talk um our uk firm actually started it several years before us but we started it i think it was last year or the year before yep and green light to talk was a group i think initially there was about 12 of us partners who had had uh, either a personal or a very close family member personal experience with some sort of a mental health challenge. And um, we become advocates for green light to talk basically. Um, and so as part of that, there's been a few videos that because I'm so photogenic. I'll, yeah. They, they, they <laughs> can't get enough of a you know? um, That's good. It means yeah, so, so much when it comes to these things and it, and it is someone who is higher up than you and I suppose people put people in your position on pedestals and seeing a little bit of vulnerability and just like, when you see it, you're like, Oh shit, he's a real person. Like it's um, it means so much and it, and it flows the whole way back through. Yeah. And like, we're all human, right? Yeah. Everyone's yeah. got their issues and you just don't know how, how shit the backstory is that some people carry with them. Right. Yeah. And so like I, one of the things that we did as that green light to talk group was to share each of our stories when we first got together and there, this was, this was partners inside the firm from all over the, all over the country. Um, we, we went around, there was like 12 of us, I think there was, and we went around the room and told what our personal experience was holy shit, I've never cried so much in my life. Like some of the stories I was hearing from these other people, like, my God. And so, A, it puts you into yourself into perspective. B, it makes you realise that you don't know how complex the life of the other person really is unless you really, really know them. Mm. Um, and like the resilience that, that exists inside humans to, to keep on carrying on regardless of what shit gets thrown at them in life, it's just remarkable. And if, if you don't draw um, 
inspiration from those sorts of stories. Like it's, I don't know what's wrong with you. Like, holy shit. Like to be able to pull yourself back from some of these things. Um, I'll have to give it a look. So yeah. So a big part of that is just sharing, sharing, right. And, and talking openly. And um, I, I've got, I've got two rules in life. Ollie, one of them is no dickheads and no bullshit is the other one. So has it, um, has it caught you out or are you? What the no dickhead policy yeah. or the no bullshit policy? Nah, bullshit. Uh, yeah, it has. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't tend to tolerate dickheads very well. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably my father coming out in me. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, to be honest, I think having lived through that experience and and certainly having made the decisions that I have recently, um, what what my brother's passing taught me and what more recently my mother's passing too so my mum passed away two years ago um which sort of as far as the nuclear family in my family is concerned i'm i'm the last man standing right which is sort of a, an interesting thing to grapple with yeah um but having having lived through all that so mum and dad have, have since since left the building and my my, my brother as well um is having a sense of clarity around what you care about and who you care about. And it's something that I've said to so many people that, that the sooner in your life and it's hard when you're young and it's, it's probably even harder through sort of your twenties to your forties, certainly into your fifties is the sooner that you can care less about what other people think of you and how other how you think other people perceive you the sooner you can just shed yourself of that the more free and unencumbered you will be now you can burn a lot of energy and a lot of time with the menial mundane kind of things can't you yeah and not and being wanting like there's there are reasons why you would want to do some of these things but like wanting to be liked by everybody that that shouldn't be a motivation wanting to be of interest to other people as a consequence, therefore being liked, but, but wanting to have people interested in the things that you say and do is different to being wanting to be liked by someone. Yeah. Right. It's completely out of your control. Exactly. And it's, it's sort of a, it's a bar that you can never measure or never really attain because it's, 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 it's the wrong objective. It's like, if you, if you want to be interesting, be interesting. If you want to be engaging, be engaging. If you want to be approachable, be approachable. Yeah. But don't have your objective to be, I want everyone to like me. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't help. Yeah. Leave people at the door that you don't need. And can I say that for me, it's been bloody incredible, I suppose, just in terms of and all the things you're talking on to there, just in terms of approachability and stuff like, when I've seen you on LinkedIn, I've seen you do a whole bunch of things through industry and around traceability and stuff. And you think, well, this guy is so far away from where I am. But the fact that um, you're willing to jump on and have a chat like shit, it's just that like, I'm yeah, so thankful for yourself, but, but it's also, there's so many people in industry that are like that who who lend you an ear for, for an hour and, and have a chat at the end of the day. That's why I'm like, you're circling back to it at the start. Like people are passionate about it and, I am, um, yeah, really appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, oh, it's my pleasure, mate. And it's it's something that um, 
something that gets sort of, well, it was certainly drummed into me from a professional perspective very early on when I first started on this whole journey was um, take notice of the things that the behaviors of other people as you progress through your career and, and pick up all the things and, and replicate and pass forward all the good things that people do and all the shit things that you observe, just keep a record of it. Like don't write it down, but like just remember those things and don't, don't be that person. Mm. Right. So be, be the best reflection of all the good interactions that you've had over your time and don't repeat the shit ones that you didn't like when you were younger or earlier on in your career. And, and like stuff like this is exactly examples of that. Like I would have loved to have had a chance to, speak to i don't know craig 20 years in the, into the future well, you, if you had done this you could have got and ray on the line we could have listened back to ray goldberg, goldberg yeah <laughs> yeah calling it in from uh the east coast of the u.s um but but having said that though i did have the ear of like amazing people so like people like david like some of these names you wouldn't have heard of but some of the older listeners listeners might but people like david trebek and um uh, people that are still in leadership positions now, like people like um, Alison Watkins and Mark Allison and Jason Strong and all like all of those people and many, many, many more have sat down with me and just um, were, were, were more than happy and were engaged to explain things that um, I didn't understand but in a really like authenticity and being authentic and being genuine in the way you ask those questions is the fundamental precondition for it to actually go anywhere. Cause if you're not genuine and you're not authentic in, um, in those sorts of conversations, they won't, they won't engage. And frankly, I won't engage. If someone is not genuine with me and isn't authentic with me when they approach me, like the wall will come up. Yeah. The um, bullshitometer that comes on. If you're genuinely interested and you genuinely want to learn, and I'll spend hours with you. Yeah. And can I say, after our chat the other day, I just thought, holy shit, I have I know nothing about this industry. Here I've been around it for ten years, but uh, yeah, I've got so much to Google and so much to think about, which is which is awesome. I hope I maybe I'm, I need to write a book. Maybe I need to write a book. Well, that could occupy a bit of your time. Do a podcast. Do a podcast. <laughs> I need someone to, to turn the dials for me, champ. I, oh. I'm pretty good on the tech, but I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm that good. No, nah, it's easy. It's the quality of the <laughs> well, guest. I've got the microphone. You can see you've got the microphone. Yeah, it's all about the quality of the guest. So. Yeah, true. <laughs> I'll probably just end up talking too much myself anyway. No, nah, it's good. Just chew the fat. So. Lovely. Yeah. Well, I might um, wrap it up there, but thanks for joining me to have a yarn today. It's been awesome. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And mate, I've been, you were saying you were an observer of mine and I was an observer of yours. And um, uh, one, one of the things that we haven't talked about is, is um, uh, the respective camps from which we both come and being different camps. And um, I, for, for whatever reason, before having made the decision that I have recently, I, I never, we, we never spoke. We never, never engaged. Yeah. Um, but, but, when, when you reached out to me and said, oh, I'd like to have, just have a conversation. We didn't even talk about the podcast. And I thought, yeah, screw it. Like this guy looks like he's a, he's a go-getter. Let's see what he's about. Right. And so, you, and you've been amazing. You've been, you've been really, really 
professional and engaging and um, true to form as far as you, what you would expect of somebody in this industry, which is great. Oh, thank you. And all the good, the good parts of what you want to hope to see in the industry. Um, so yeah. No, thank you. And I hope this isn't the final conversation. Hopefully I can keep chewing your ear off about all kinds of Mate, I'm, I haven't, I don't think I've been controversial enough. So I'm more than happy to fire some bullets and, and launch some bombs next time we talk. Yeah, no, well, I think today's been awesome understanding your story, but I, I reckon I do want to deep dive into some of the more topical issues and maybe run some mini series on various things in Australian agriculture and I suppose, yeah, maybe more broadly global agriculture where it's going and, I think, uh, yeah, we're, we're in for exciting times. Agriculture's at the forefront. It's got a lot of challenges, but a lot of opportunities. Yeah, the, well, it's a, it, I don't want to use the words that seem to be used way too much at the moment, particularly around COVID and all that sort of stuff, but the, the world's a hell of a lot more complex than it was 12 months ago. Um, but having said that, there's a few fundamental truths that, that this industry knows all too well. One is that people have got to eat and um, the, the potential and the significance of the industry that we work in, like it's not going away. This is not, this is not, um, I, don't, I don't see agriculture having a Kodak moment as such in the near future um, because there's still some fundamental rules of physics that play out as far as food production is concerned. And unless we have new discoveries in physics and biology in the near future, there, there still needs to be a farmer. And I can't see robots that are really going to completely take the labor units necessary to produce food completely out of the equation yeah. anywhere soon. I'll make it easier. I'll make it quicker. I'll make it a hell of a lot faster. And, you make shitloads of better decisions quicker, but there's still some heavy lifting to do and this industry's got a long way to run yet. Well, that's it for another week. They're flying by. I hope you got a lot out of today's chat. I certainly did. And I've actually listened back to it a few times already. You can find a bit more about Craig's Instagram page and where he's going in the show notes below. You can find out about Shanna and Sober in the Country. And you can also find Craig's video for Greenlight to Talk. As always, I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. And tune in next week as we chat with Ellie Landale from The Farm Table. See you next week.